today on CityCast Chicago. The name ShotSpotter might not be that familiar to you, but it's actually a pretty big deal for the city of Chicago. Chicago police use the technology to detect the sound of gunshots, but activists are calling on the city to stop using ShotSpotter after reports claim it doesn't actually lead to less crime. The implementation of these technologies represents, again, like the city not trusting people and communities to keep each other safe, to know what they need. It's Tuesday, August 10th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Chicago is ShotSpotter's second biggest client, a contract that cost the city up to $33 million. Now, the contract had been set to expire this month. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, journalist and author Jamie Calvin has written about ShotSpotter and tells us more about the city's relationship with the technology, including the role it played in two fatal shootings in Chicago. So how does that technology work? Is it just like a microphone that is listening all day, every day? Yes. You don't know where they are. You know, we can infer where they are from where the alerts come from. My understanding of the technology is that they're not exact in identifying the particular spot. So maybe it's more broadly like a, a city block. I'm not sure that's the exact dimension, but the, you know, approximately that's the, the area that it, it senses. The, the fundamental problem with it, apart from its racially disparate mm-hmm. deployment, is in a dense city like Chicago, there are lots of loud noises mm-hmm. that resemble gunfire. You know, we've just emerged from the the sort of season around July 4th. How accurate is ShotSpotter? You know, it's reasonably precise. You know, it doesn't send you on a wild goose chase. But one of the one of the essential problems with this is that it generates so many false positives. That is, ShotSpotter alerts that come into these centers, they call them strategic decision centers that the police department maintains. And the the fiction about this is that technology is enabling the police to make highly strategic, rational, evidence-based, data-driven deployment decisions. And the reality is that, you know, based on one really quite, you know, I think rigorous study with information in the in the public uh, domain that the MacArthur Justice Center of Northwestern Law School did, upwards of 89% of shot spotter alerts do not result in any report of a gun crime. Upwards of 85% don't result in the report of any crime at all. You know, usually when there's a new technology of this nature, there actually is a peer-reviewed scientific literature assessing the technology. If you go into the literature on ShotSpotter, there are no peer-reviewed studies. You know, they they've actually testified they have a, an expert witness who often appears on behalf of ShotSpotter, and he has, in fact, testified in a case that their 
assertion of 97%, I think it is now, 97% accuracy of ShotSpotter alerts comes out of their marketing department. It doesn't come from their engineers or from some independent assessment of the efficacy of the technology. It comes from their marketing department. It's not only that this system is cranking out false positives, but how does that mobilize officers as they're heading to a response? Imagine, imagine yourself as an officer. I've talked to some officers about this. So you're, you know, you're full of adrenaline. You got your foot on the gas. You jump out, and the just the impetus on the part of officers to kind of muscle up, and right away you're in an intense encounter with people. So somebody just is, you know, sitting on their stoop or you know walking on the street. And so there's a much higher probability of an adverse encounter that comes just out of that energy. Now, the Toledo case is interesting. The 13-year-old child shot by a Chicago police officer, I wrote about that case. So first you have the shot spotter alert, the charging off. Then they arrive on the scene. Adam Toledo and another older, older man are there. They, you know, it appears from surveillance video that there had been some gunplay. They may or may not have shot at a passing car. We'll learn more, you know, as as the case is investigated. But they saw the police. They immediately took flight. The police chased them. The officer says, drop the gun, drop the gun. Adam Toledo turns around. He has, in fact, as can be seen in video, thrown the gun down on the ground. He's turning around. He's raising his hands as requested. The officer perceives that he has a gun, shoots him, kills him. And, you know, the thing that is, to me, really heartbreaking about the case is I think you could really say at some level that CPD pulled the trigger. The officer was essentially doing his job. I mean, this was a death caused by policy, a shot spotter, and it was produced by the failure to have a, a clearly defined foot pursuit policy. So that was an avoidable death. And I think we have to ask how many other avoidable deaths have there been because of, or, or avoidable, you know, really adverse outcomes. And, and how many will there be if we continue to use this deeply flawed technology. And it's not just how officers are reacting to ShotSpotter alerts. There was a recent article by Vice that claims that ShotSpotter analysts have actually changed the data at the request of their clients. For example, last year, 64-year-old Michael Williams dropped off a man at St. Bernard Hospital who had been shot in the head and unfortunately died two days later. Chicago police eventually arrested Williams and charged him with murder. Williams pleaded not guilty and his case is still ongoing. Police claim that they know Williams was behind the killing because they received a shot spotter alert putting Williams at the place and time of the fatal shooting. But that might not actually be true. You know, it turned out that shot spotter had on a couple of occasions manually altered the results of the alert in communication with the the prosecution, the initial alert came from roughly a mile away and was initially identified as firecracker, you know, as, as firecrackers. And then it was altered 
manually altered to say that it was gunfire and not firecrackers. And then it was manually altered to place it at the site on Stony Island. I mean, as a journalist, I'm not prepared to, to absolutely say that, you know, this was falsifying the evidence in the case. But it raises serious, serious questions. Yeah, because this was manually changed by an individual. It was manually changed by an individual. And the biggest issue in the city. So supposedly something like ShotSpotter is this rigorous technology that's not subject to that kind of manipulation. And then in the Williams case, we have reason to question that. You know, And then when it's questioned, the evidence is pulled back so that it is not subjected to the scrutiny of the judicial process, of the legal process. So when it's time to scrutinize ShotSpotter, instead, they bury it and we just move on business as usual. We bury it. We move on. Now, we reached out to ShotSpotter about some of the findings regarding the accuracy, including questions in the case of Michael Williams about whether or not there was actually a gunshot fired. They told us that ShotSpotter's two-step review process initially classified the sound as a firecracker, but the ShotSpotter reviewers went back and determined it was a gunshot. They say the review process is solely the work of reviewers and doesn't involve police, attorneys, or the company's marketing department. ShotSpotter said in a court-admissible forensic report, the company's analysts confirmed it was a gunshot. We also asked about the MacArthur Justice Center's findings that what ShotSpotter detects doesn't actually end up being a crime most of the time. They claim that that's an erroneous conclusion. CPD told us ShotSpotter has detected hundreds of shootings that would have otherwise gone unreported. Coming up, we speak with an activist who is refusing to sweep these claims under a rug. Here at CityCast Chicago, we love to read your reviews of the show, like this one that says, there are so many Chicago stories you just do not get anywhere else. Fabulous work. Well, thank you for that. It's what we love to do, and leaving a review helps us do more of it. It makes it easier for your fellow Chicagoans to find the podcast and connect. So please rate and review CityCast Chicago wherever you can, and share us with your friends. Thanks. Who keeps us safe? Who keeps us safe? Who keeps us safe? That's right. And we want to ask Lori. A couple of weeks ago, a group of about 100 people marched near the alley where Adam Toledo was killed just four months earlier. One of those activists was Alex Goodwin. Alex is one of the creators of the Stop Shot Spotter petition. Alex, welcome to CityCast Chicago. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why are community members just so against ShotSpotter as a piece of technology? Folks in these neighborhoods, in in Black and Latinx neighborhoods in particular, right, almost never have a say in what is being used in their neighborhood, right? Like, there, there was no public forum or public comment or opportunity for input when ShotSpotter was implemented in the same way that there is no, you know, opportunity for input when police are using like license plate readers and all of these other cameras, right? The implementation of these technologies represents, again, like the city not trusting people and communities to keep each other safe, to know what they need. Cities and their administrations and their police departments assume we don't know what's best for us. So we're just going to like 
implement ShotSpotter. We're just going to implement these things, implement these policies, boost the police budget because we know what's going to fight crime or deter crime. It's just another example of the state pouring money into policing when people are saying that they need trauma-informed health care, that they need counselors in their schools, that they need jobs and housing. It's about it's about priorities. And, and the state seems to be able to find money for technology. It seems to be able to find money for overtime. It seems to be able to find money for putting garbage trucks and salt trucks up and down the streets for potential protests, but it can't find money for the means and services and resources that is informed by research, that's informed by community members. And the reason this, again, this campaign has taken such life in uh, Chicago is because we've had studies come out about shot spotters unreliability. One of them came from the MacArthur Justice Center. Why do you think the city still hasn't investigated shot spotter when we're looking at what nine out of 10 are false alarms? Why hasn't the city done more to investigate this from your perspective? You know, there are, there is a history of segregation and racism in Chicago that like Black people, Latinx people are inherently violent and we cannot control ourselves. We need to, we need to be controlled with force. That is the, the narrative. And I wish I knew why it's so hard for elected officials to move away from that narrative. Um, and I won't, you know, I won't group all, all elected officials because there are some that we've been working with that are in support of canceling shot, of getting rid of the shot spotter contract. But, you know, for the most part, you know, on, on the on the part about like relying on technology to be some like neutral force here, we have we should be paying close attention to the fact that like as calls for abolition get louder and more visible, the the reform side of things also is getting stronger. Yeah, that march that we heard you speaking at. It actually took place at the site where Adam Toledo was killed by a Chicago police officer. How did you feel when you originally heard that news when the when the video came out? What was your reaction? Yeah, to be fully honest, I didn't watch the video. I couldn't. But the the news and the story itself hits me in a particular way. I have an eight year old and a three year old, and while you know they're not teenagers yet or anything like that, I just it's really hard for me to put into words the way I feel when I'm reading and hearing about police killings of anybody, but young people in particular. So at, at the march, we were joined by um, Adam Toledo's mother, which I'm like very grateful for. Um, she was present. And, you know, there was a moment in, before that where where she was like standing at the memorial and like having a private moment. I mean, it was like very emotional for me because I, I couldn't, how do you do anything but rage? when you lose a child. I think the restraint that some of these families show is, is really, is, you know, really incredible. Cause I don't know that I would have the same kind of restraint. And I feel like at the very sure. least that I could do is like work to cancel these contracts. Alex Goodwin is a member of the Defund CPD campaign and one of the co-creators of that Stop Shot Spotter petition. Thank you for joining CityCast Chicago. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We started reporting this story because ShotSpotter's contract with Chicago was set to expire this month. But actually, 
the city already extended its contract through 2023. In a statement, a spokesperson said, the option to extend or cancel the contract does not require city council's approval. That's probably why we didn't hear about it. So activists like Alex are gonna continue fighting its use. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. With the state's eviction moratorium officially set to end August 31st, Governor Pritzker announced another $60 million in funding for those who could lose their home. Now, this pool of money has been set aside so that judges can help individuals going through eviction proceedings get access to the funding opportunities they need. Chicago continues to fight the Delta variant of COVID-19 as daily cases have jumped. This time last month, folks, the daily average was just 61. Now, the daily average is over 340. And some good news to get you through. This Sunday, you can catch me live in person hosting karaoke storytellers at Shuba's at 7 o'clock. If you ever ask yourself at karaoke, what's the story behind the songs people choose? We're going to answer that question for you. And we're headlined by the amazing and one and only comedian Lisa B. I'll see you there. Remember, for more Chicago stories and events, sign up for our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Let us go from the top, make it drop.